Well, it's good to see everybody here today on this sunny and bright Sunday, Earth Day. And uh, I hope all of you posted something on your Facebook page about Earth Day. We need to remind people. If it wasn't for the Earth, we wouldn't be here. And we wouldn't have chocolate. (laughs) So it's important. I wanted to talk a little bit about what I did Thursday and then go on from there. So Thursday, I was invited to be part of the Olympic Division Police Captain's Prayer Breakfast, 8 to 10. And clergy from the community were going to gather at Wilshire Boulevard Temple, and we were going to speak about stuff and have breakfast. And so I was excited about breakfast (laughs) and figured it would be a good time to eat. And so I am at a big disadvantage, and I want to share this with you because you may also be at a big disadvantage when you participate in an interreligious, interfaith um, community activity. And the problem we have as Buddhists is we are non-theistic. And I was the only one there who was a non-theist. Everybody else was in God's house and I was just in a house. (laughs) And so I, I realize that I am going to be called upon to interact and be clever and make everybody feel at ease... So as I made my way into Wilshire Boulevard Temple, we sort of met in the foyer before we went into the main room. And I started off in a really unskillful way. The the Catholic priest was there. And, And I had seen him many times before. And I went up to him and said, Hi, Father, how are you today? And it was raining and a little cool by Los Angeles standards and And under his breath, I heard him say, it's Monsignor. And I went, oh, man. (laughs) So I didn't correct myself, but I I decided to go talk to some other people. (laughs) And and then there was a a friend of mine who's from the the Sikh tradition. And, and he doesn't necessarily belong to a Sikh church, but he's part of the Sikh community, and he does interfaith work, and he makes people feel comfortable about Sikhism in L.A. County and Orange County. And so I've seen him at many interfaith uh, you know, uh, religious activities. And I said, and he came up to me and said, hey, are you still giving those talks? And I go, yeah. <laughs> I thought, what an odd way to greet me. But... Um, And then we just started talking, and I realized he wasn't really excited to see me either. (laughs) And then we had some people from the Vedanta Society. And I like them, because they're pretty close to Buddhism, except when it comes to God. And they have some really cool philosophy and all sorts of stuff. So I was lucky enough to sit at the table that the three Vedanta people sat at, along with the captain. I was at his table and a couple of the other police officers. So it was probably the best table there. And 
I thought I'd start off the conversation with a little humor, you know, because humor is the shortest distance between two people. And so I said, you know, I, on my Facebook page, I posted something by Suzuki Roshi. And, of course, the blank stares were looking at me. And I said, you know, somebody asked Suzuki Roshi, how much ego do you really need? And Suzuki Roshi said, enough so you don't get hit by a bus. <laughs> and the Vedanta guy goes, hit by a bus. <laughs> and I thought of all the people at that table, they would get it, but they weren't impressed with that either. And so I asked the captain, I said, Captain, how do you feel about vending on the street? They're supposed to get permits going and we're going to have vending on the street. And how do you feel about that? And he's, he's a humanist. I like him. He, and he's thoughtful. And he says, well, they're already doing it now. And I thought, yeah, that's really a good answer. So I didn't want to press him uh, because, you know, they had a certain party line they needed to keep. And all the religious people there had a certain party line that they needed to keep. And there and then was me, and I don't really have much of a party line, you know? I have my own line. And, and it's just like, okay, you know, I'm going to be secular. I'm going to be humanistic. I'm going to try to be clever. And I'm going to try to eat my breakfast and not feel uncomfortable. So I ate my breakfast. And then it was time for all of us to leave. And, you know, like nobody said goodbye, and I didn't say goodbye. And we just all sort of left, you know. And I'm going, yeah. It's really difficult to be in these kind of interreligious gatherings because everybody is so convinced they're right, you know. And I don't want to tell them they're not because I don't know who's right or who's wrong. You know, everybody's probably right at some level, you know. So I just went, whoa. But the high point for me was at the table. And somehow I got to talking about myself. Go figure. <laughs> And I said, you know, I just had a birthday. And the captain goes, you know, I've got a birthday too this month. I said, oh, how old are you going to be, captain? He says, I want to be 48. And I freaked out. <laughs> and the reason I freaked out was because one year before he was born, I moved to L.A. And I was 20. And, and, and he sounded like he was the oldest man on earth when he said 48, you know. And, and I just realized I was the oldest man on earth sitting at that table. So it, it led me to reflect on a few things about getting old, and I'd like to share those with you. Because one day you'll all be old as well if you're lucky, and then, then you'll know that what I'm about to say is absolutely true. Well, the first thing that I realized at my birthday, now I was 69 this April 3rd. I want to throw that in there. So people, when they ask me how old I am now, I say almost 70. <laughs> because I want to get ready. <laughs> I want to feel comfortable when that big 7-0 comes and I'll have said it for a whole year. Almost 70. So impermanence, you know, and the Buddha warned us, really talked a lot about impermanence. He said, that's one of the reasons our life is going to be ultimately unsatisfactory, because everything changes and not necessarily in a good way. And I gave a talk in Ventura this month, and I, in, in the talk I said, you know, I've been thinking about impermanence a lot. And this morning I looked in the mirror, 
And I said to myself, I don't know how much more of this I can take. You know, because you got the wrinkles and the brown spots and less hair, you know, and, and you have to brush your teeth twice a day instead of once just so they'll stay in your mouth. And you're just going through all this stuff just to maintain what you don't have anymore. And I'm going, wow, that is really a trip. And then, wait, you know, I, I've lost weight because, number one, I've eaten less. It's called the ELF diet. Eat less food. <laughs> so I've been... I've been, I've been eating less, and, and I've gone from 275 to 230, you know, which, but it was a year. I mean, it wasn't like yesterday, but it was like a year, and it was gradual, and all of a sudden, your pants are a little big, and your shirt doesn't fit quite the same way. And then people will say to you, man, you lost a lot of weight. And I go, yeah, but I'm still 230. It's not like I'm going to, you know, float away in the air. And I'm just like, wow, yeah. Because at one time when I was young, I used to weigh 175. I was sleek, you know, sleek and, and mean and looked pretty good, you know. And then I got to like 30 and 40, and they, all of a sudden the pounds just started to accumulate for some reason. And then you get to 50 or 60, and if you're lucky, they sort of go away. Because there's less strain on your back and your knees and your joints. And it's nice to be a little bit thinner as you get older. Because it's just easier to get up from the seated position. You know, so I'm looking at this, I'm going, yeah, you know, everything is like really changing. And then I had this profound insight on the stage of the Ventura Center for Spiritual Living. I said, you know what? I figured this out, that all this stuff that I've been talking about for 25 years has one goal in mind. And you might think enlightenment. Well, that is the main goal. But the second main goal is... We all got to die, you know? And it's the one thing each and every one of us has in common in this room. And it's the one thing we're not going to talk about. Because it's just too weird to talk about our own demise, you know? And that was one of the issues I came up with as I got older, is now I'm closer to my demise. So how am I going to accept it? Has Buddhism helped me in any way die better. And then it dawned on me, absolutely. Because as I get older, two things are going to happen. Because of Buddhism, I'm going to suffer less. But because I'm human, I'm going to have more pain. And those two things will come together as I age into my eternity. Less suffering, more pain. Less suffering, more pain. And then I thought, yeah, okay, right on, but I got it figured out. Meditation for the suffering. Medication for the pain. <laughs> and those things in unison will help me make the transition to my next lifetime in perhaps a skillful way with a lot less resistance because I'll have less pain because of my medication and less suffering because of my meditation. And one year on 420, I'll be celebrating. Maybe. <laughs> Had to throw that in there. So, okay, so getting older, you see the impermanence. And what does this impermanence lead to? It leads to more suffering. And the Buddha said... Our life is going to be ultimately unsatisfactory. 
And there will be times in our life when it's really unsatisfactory. And just driving down Vermont to get here today, you see the homeless people, and you just go, man, unsatisfactory. You know, and were they always homeless? A lot of them weren't. A lot of them, this is sort of like a new thing. Because it's really hard to live in L.A. now because it's so expensive. The Sikh guy I was talking to has a family at the police captain's breakfast. He spends 3000 a month for a small two-bedroom. And I'm thinking, man, that's a lot of money for a small two-bedroom. You could probably move to North Carolina and get a whole house. And maybe a big lot for that price, you know. So the prices of rent are pushing people out. And a lot of them don't want to leave because, you know what, the weather is really nice. I was talking to somebody in New York just a couple days ago, and it's not nice there. It's cold, there's sleet, there's snow. You've got to walk to the buses because nobody can drive. There's no parking. It's too expensive. You've got to go into the city. It's $50 to park for the day. And I'm thinking, L.A. is so cool. That's why everybody's moving out here, you know, because they figure sooner or later they'll have a place to live because we're spending millions of dollars to build places for people to live. So we might even have, wow, 150 units available soon for the 50,000 homeless. Yeah, okay. So maybe by 2025, you know. But then you figure there's going to just be more people. When I moved out here in 1969, you know, you could actually go the speed limit on the freeway. It was so cool. And you go down to Sunset Boulevard, and there'd be hippies. And if you've ever been around a bunch of hippies, it makes you just feel good. They're good to look at. They're talking a higher consciousness philosophy. They're going to see the doors on Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> Man, that was the time. I thought, this is perfect. I am so glad I moved out from Milwaukee, Wisconsin to L.A., and now I'm on Sunset Boulevard. And I was just tripping out. I'm thinking, it can't get much better than this. And it didn't. <laughs> So now I look around, I go to Sunset Boulevard, man, traffic, no parking, everybody's sort of, you know, doing a hustle, and I'm like, man, I don't know, I don't know, what happened? What happened? It changed. I changed, it changed. After 50 years in L.A., it has changed so much, you know? And I'm thinking, okay, does it ever change for the better? No. Life never changes for the better. You get old, you get sick, you get die, you can't find parking, you can't afford to live. Food's really expensive. Now there's romaine lettuce that gives you E. coli. And you just go, oh, why, you know? I've got this little filter on the faucet at the meditation center to filter the water so it gets the, the lead and all the particles out. It says it doesn't really change the water, but it'll smell better and taste better, which is probably good enough in L.A. So I'm going through all this stuff. Yeah, okay, I got it now. You know, you get old, and it doesn't get any better. And the older you get, the worse it gets. And maybe, maybe that's why it's okay to die at some point in your life. Be, right? Have you, ever, have you ever thought about that? You know? 
Yeah, you get really old and you can't walk anymore and you can't talk anymore and you got no teeth. And you just say to yourself, maybe it's okay just to let go of all this crap. Maybe that next life holds a lot more fun, you know, and peace for me. But of course it doesn't. It's just going to suffer again all the way through. But there you go. So you're sitting in your assisted care bed, you know, watching Oprah reruns, wishing your music was no longer called classic music. (laughs) And you're just going, yeah, okay, well, you know, maybe I should just stop eating and drinking water, you know, and just check out, you know, suicide, the Buddhist way. And I talked to a Buddhist monk. And a Buddhist monk, I said, you know, is it ever okay for a Buddhist to commit suicide, and how, and how should they do it? And he was very forthcoming and candid with me. He said, I had a friend who was a Buddhist monk, and he got cancer. And it was a terminal cancer that couldn't be fixed, and it was so hard to even keep him comfortable. So he decided to take his own life. So he stopped eating and drinking water. And within a week or so, he was gone. And he didn't do it because he hated his life. He did it because it was time to maybe transition. And sometimes when I look at the cats that I take care of, and they're in their transition period, you know, and they're going to be reborn, hopefully, as a resident at IBMC, I'm thinking to myself, should I help them along and kill them? You know, and of course, we don't use that term, you know, genocide or euthanasia or put it to sleep. You know, I like that when I want somebody to put me to sleep, you know. <laughs> so then I have to decide, well, would they can they die well? Because if they can die well, I don't need to do anything. And I've had some cats that have died so well. Now, I'm so glad I didn't interfere with their death. We had one Bruno. Bruno was this big male alpha male, and he would black and white and had a giant head on him. And he'd just walk around the backyard and he'd just intimidate all little female cats. And then at night he'd go out on the street and find some other cats to intimidate and he'd come back. And so for like the last couple years of his life, he just hung around the backyard, never left the backyard. He sort of knew his time was coming to an end and he was comfortable. We have trees and we have a koi pond and, and we have shade and we got food out all day long and he could just eat and drink and sleep all he wanted to do. So he's starting to get thin, really thin, you know, almost like he's just filled with air. You pick him up, he doesn't weigh anything. And you're going, oh, man, it's going to happen pretty soon. Then he stopped drinking water. Then he stopped eating food. And I said to myself, yeah, you know, Bruno, man, you've been around for a long time. You've been a great cat. I hope you die well. And the next morning, I found him dead next to the koi pond with the running water. And I'm thinking to myself, he knew how to die. And he just sort of laid down. It looked like he was sleeping. And then he just passed away. And I thought, cool. Now that's, that's a good death. And then I've had other cats who just screamed and yelled and didn't want to go and tried their best not to die, and they died anyway. So sometimes if it looks like it's going to go in that direction, I'll take them to the vet and put them to sleep. And it's the bodhisattva ideal, which is not necessarily found in early Buddhism, that your job is to reduce suffering and ultimately end suffering. And because you're human and have the ability to acquire karma, good karma, by doing good activities, you have this merit. And when you put that cat to sleep, what you're going to be doing is spending some of your merit. 
You're going to be absorbing the consequences of that unskillful activity with all the good merit that you've accumulated over the past year or lifetime that will balance it out so you won't have any severe consequences from taking the life of the cat. And the cat will be able to transition in a peaceful way. So you're taking on this big responsibility. First precept, as you know, is not to take life. And you've decided to kill the cat for its own good. And you'll never know if it's for its own good because you'll never be able to see it die the way it's supposed to naturally die because you're going to kill it before it dies. And it's just, you don't, you're never going to have all the information necessary and yet you just can't stop and wait for stuff to happen. You have to move forward. You have to have confidence. You have to be willing to take chances and be willing to accept the consequences of unskillful activity even though you didn't think it was unskillful at the time. So all this stuff is coming into my head as I'm sitting at the captain's table. 48, man, you're just young, man, you know? You're not even a half a century yet. And then the old guy's going, oh, man, how many cats have I killed? You know, what kind of karma is in store for me as I make my transition? Well, I have terrible nightmares, you know, of cats coming to rip me to pieces. And then I just sort of settled down and going, yeah, okay, well, this is just it. This is what the Buddha warned us about. And even the Buddha had to die. We all have to die. The Buddha, Muhammad, you know, uh, Jesus, wow, and me. And I'm going, okay, yeah, yeah, happy birthday, Kusala. You'll be dead soon. And then I have to smile because, yeah, you can't take it too seriously. There's no hope. You know how it's going to end. You just got to take each day as it comes. Be happy the next day showed up. It gives you something to do, you know, before you're not going to be able to do anything ever again. So then I'm thinking about this impermanence thing and this thing, you know, like, who am I really? Who am I really? You know, and Buddhism just loves that question. You know, Zen people just spend years, who am I really? And then they come up with moo, and you go, what the hell are they talking about? <laughs> you know? So at some point, I just said, well, the real Kusala, please stand up. And nobody stood up. And there I was. I don't know what's real now. I'm conditional. I'm a bunch of aggregates that somehow can walk and talk and watch TV and read a book. Okay. But what does that mean? Have I been somebody all my life, or have I been many people all my life? So for my birthday, I decided to clean my room. You know, spring cleaning, you know, I have sort of a half German background, those Germans love to clean. I hate to clean, so that's the other half of mine. And, and I'm cleaning, and it's been years, and I got stuff that's got dust, and I've got stuff that I did 15 years ago, and I kept notes, and I have articles, and I have newspaper clippings, and I have pictures and pictures, when people actually used to have pictures. And have you ever tried to clean something that you haven't touched for 10 years? You know, there you sit, and you start reading the articles again, and you start looking at all the pictures, and three hours go by, you haven't done anything, except made a pile of thoughts and memories and nostalgia, you know? 
So now I'm thinking to myself, can I really throw all this stuff away? Because it still has a connection to me. It still has meaning for me. And then I said, yes, I can. I can throw this stuff away because that's who I used to be. Not who I am now. And all those little articles and pictures, that was somebody else. They're dead. They already left the room. You know, this guy standing here doesn't need 400 books because this guy standing here has a Kindle reader with 400 books. But in his hand, not gathering dust in the bookshelf, not weighing 2,000 pounds, not wondering who you're going to give all the books to, who would be interested in the stuff you're interested in. Maybe three people. You know, so you got all this stuff. And I'm thinking, well, goodwill. They'll be interested in all the stuff that isn't me any longer. Maybe, but maybe they can sell it. Maybe somebody else can reuse it. Maybe somebody else can appreciate it, you know, in the way I did. So giving stuff away isn't necessarily a bad thing. It really loosens up your life a little bit and allows you to be the person you are now and not have to dwell too much on the person that you used to be. So I'm cleaning and cleaning, and it's good. I'm throwing it away. I'm giving it away. feel better about myself. But again, the question is, who are you now? And do you need as much stuff as you used to need? And you don't because one day you'll be dead and your family and friends are going to have to come in and throw all that crap away. You're going to burden them, you know. And then they'll start looking at the pictures and reading the articles. They won't get anything done. they say, oh, what a fine man he used to be. Look at all the stuff he had. We can't throw it away. Maybe we can give it to a Buddhist museum and he'll be there for eternity, you know. And maybe not. You know, you know, can you walk through life and not leave any footprints? You know, because we got seven billion people. They're all leaving footprints. You know, can you be the one who doesn't leave footprints? Something to think about. So I'm going through all this stuff just because I had a birthday and I'm almost 70. And I'm not quite sure if I have done the right thing over my lifetime. Because certain things have caused me to do stuff. And I talked about this a few months ago, but I'll just refresh your mind. The five niyamas, why stuff happens. So I'm applying those things to my life now. The five niyamas are, number one, sort of geological stuff like gravity and solar systems and planets and earthquakes and seasons and weather, those things just sort of happen because of other conditions and we don't have much to say about it. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, how does that apply to me in my old age? Well, you know, I'm still on earth and I still feel gravity every day and it seems to be getting stronger for some reason. (laughs) I'm not quite sure why. (laughs) So yeah, so that has led me to do a lot of things that maybe I shouldn't have done because I've been in places on earth where maybe I shouldn't have been. And and so I started to reflect on that. And then the second niyama, genes and chromosomes, my humanity, where I came from, parents, you know. And when I was a kid, I had asthma. And I thought about the asthma, and it was all psychological. Maybe a little physical, but mostly psychological. And I outgrew the asthma. And I had asthma in Arizona. 
And that's where people go to get rid of their asthma. And I got it. Did I get it from them? You know, I don't know. So I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that I can't blame anybody for the asthma because it was probably genes and chromosomes and maybe a little mind and some mental issues that needed to be resolved. The third one was karma, you know, the moral aspects of why I am the way I am. And the consequences of what I did made me who is sitting here today. And a lot of those consequences seem to be good because I'm still sitting, but a lot of the consequences I have felt and struggled with and just wanted it to be different than it is, but the cause and consequence of my life led me in a certain direction. And I thought that was so interesting because I don't know how I found Buddhism, and I don't know why it was so cool and why it seemed so familiar, and yet somehow the cause and consequence of my life led me in that direction eventually and made it a lifestyle for me today. And then we have the Dharma Niyama, the Dharma. And the Dharma is like the spiritual qualities. The Dharma is the Buddhist philosophy that we can use to understand why stuff happens to us. And one of the most important things for me was the Four Noble Truths. That's why stuff happened to me when I started to read the Four Noble Truths, and number one was, you know, life is ultimately unsatisfactory. And at the point I read that, I said, no kidding. Yeah, because I was turning 28, which for me felt like 100, and I was depressed for almost a year because I was almost 30. So that's why I'm going to say I'm almost 70, so I don't get depressed. And, and I just sort of felt that I needed something, and there was the Dharma. And the Dharma just made things so clear as to why stuff was happening to me at that point, because I never felt that I suffered. I, I don't know what led me, what great delusion I had in life, but I never felt like I was suffering. It's just sort of what happened to everybody all the time, and I didn't realize there was an option. I didn't realize you could get out of it if you figured out why you were suffering. So when I read the second noble truth, why I am suffering, it just lights went on. You know, I'm suffering because I got desire. I have craving. I have a thirst. I have an attachment for the good, and I have an aversion for the bad. And I struggle with that. And I want to hold on to the really good stuff. And like I said before, everything changes in permanence. So I can't hold on to anything for longer than a moment because it turns into something else. And so do I. Wow, bummer. But then I looked at myself and said, well, I wonder if there's an answer. And sure enough, third noble truth, Buddha was right there. Kusala, there's an answer, man. It's nirvana. Which brings me back to the captain's prayer breakfast, speaking to the Vedanta Society monks. And he's going on about, oh man, you know, it's a matter of cause and consequence, and we keep, you know, and then all of a sudden we're back and we're back with it. You know, the soul merges back with a great soul. And I'm going, hey, we got something pretty similar to that, but we don't call it what you call it. We call it nirvana. Nirvana? No, no, that's not nirvana. I said, well, yeah, for us it is. You know, again, this non-theist approach to God and the great being, you know, we just have a name, nirvana. It's eternal and it's peaceful. 
and we like it, and we're trying to get there. You know, and so he smiled and probably felt, ah, the poor guy, he just doesn't understand. (laughs) (laughs) So before he left, I said, Swami, thank you for sharing your thoughts with me. And he had this big grin, you know, because that's what we were doing, wasn't it? We just had a bunch of thoughts and we were just sharing them, you know. Sometimes the thoughts clicked, sometimes they didn't. So now I'm there at 28, 29. I figured out I'm suffering. That's why I've been depressed. I figured out I'm suffering because I figured out there's an answer. And then the Buddha kept going and said, you know what? The answer is the Eightfold Path. This is what I did. Now, at one time, I joined a gym and wanted to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. Because I saw pumping iron, and that guy was massive. And I thought, that is the epitome of masculinity. If I could just have an arm like that, I'd be a guy. And there'd be no question. Okay. Well, unfortunately for me, or maybe fortunately, Arnold had his own genes and chromosomes, and had his own exercise routine, and took a lot of other stuff. You know, protein supplements and all this kind of stuff. And then he got really big, and I'm at the gym, and I'm working out, and I'm looking in the mirror. And, yeah, I'm getting a little bit stronger, you know, but I'm not getting really big, which probably was a good thing. So when I listened to the Buddha tell me how he did his stuff and achieved nirvana, I sort of realized I wasn't the Buddha, you know, and I wasn't even an Arahant, and I surely wasn't Siddhartha. So I sort of had to look at what he did, and I had to translate it into my life experience. How can I do what he did in my own way? Because the end result will be the same. Nirvana is nirvana is nirvana. But I can't be anybody else. And he had his own special karma for many lifetimes of being a bodhisattva. I probably haven't been a bodhisattva yet. So my many lifetimes were just being a suffering being, trying to figure it out. So I started to apply what the Eightfold Path was allowing me to see in my own way. And the first thing I was applying is I needed to be a better person. Because I wasn't a good person, I wasn't a bad person, but I was just sort of an okay person. I was good enough most of the time. But to be a Buddhist, you've got to be better than good enough most of the time. So I accepted the five precepts. I said, I'm going to follow the five precepts. That will help me be a better person. And I'll feel better about myself, and I'll feel better in my interactions with others. So I did. I took the five precepts, and I'm, you know, and I'm looking good. I'm not killing as many spiders as I used to kill. You know? <clears throat> I'm not drinking as much beer as I used to drink. You know, and I'm being more skillful with what I say and how I say it. So I'm getting better. I feel like a better person. Makes you feel good. And then, then I saw that the next thing I needed to do was I needed to meditate. And I didn't know what meditation was, you know. I came from Iowa. I was a Lutheran. I lived in Phoenix, Arizona. I had asthma. You know, what the hell is meditation? Well, it's sitting, you know, for long periods of time and not doing anything. Wow. How do you sit for long periods of time and not do anything, you know? Because I couldn't even watch PBS. They didn't have enough commercials. So I needed breaks, you know? 
and now I'm going to be sitting for a half hour and not do anything? How am I going to do that? So I started to study, and I started to see that it can be done. You can sit for very long periods of time and not do anything, you know? And rocks have done it for thousands of years. <laughs> I just needed to be a rock. So, okay, so I'm sitting and sitting, and then I have all this stuff going on in my head, which I hadn't realized before, because all the stuff that was in my head I thought was me. And it would tell me what to do and how I should do it and how I could be. And then I started to see that, no, that's not necessarily me. That's an option to be me in that way if I have a choice and if I want to take it. And so what meditation gave me was a choice to take it or not to take it. Meditation gave me the insight to realize all that stuff in my head wasn't me. It was there because I had a mind and a body. And it just arose and existed and went away all the time, every day, every night. So, okay, what do I need to do? I need to change what I choose to do. You know, and the five precepts have helped me now, give me a reference point, an anchor. Okay, but now I found out about the three poisons. I said, yeah, that's it. Those poisons are in my head, and they're working all the time. And they are greed, hatred, and delusion. So I need to be able to opt out and say, no, I'm not going to be greedy today. Okay, cool. No, don't eat that whole cake, just one piece. Okay, I got it. One piece of cake today. And you just sort of start to see that the greed, hatred, and delusion has an opposite. Greed, generosity, hatred, kindness, delusion, insight. So now you've got this sort of dualistic model of who you are and what you can choose to do. Greed, generosity. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. I saw a guy down at Ralph's, you know, he had a dog on his shoulder and he had a sign saying, I need, need food. So I saw him, you know, and I just went, oh, man, you know. So I went up and said, you know, can I buy the dog some food? <laughs> you know. He says, the dog has plenty of food. It's me I'm worried about. And I just thought to myself, yeah, that is how it works. You don't put the dog on your shoulder because he's going to get all the generosity. You know, and why don't we want to give it to humans? I don't know. Are there ulterior motives? They should have done better. They could have done better. What? We look at the dog, and the dog just did what a dog does, you know? But the human has so much potential, you know? And we look at that, and if we find that potential in our own life, it changes the direction we go in, and it changes the outcome. So it's a wonderful thing. So I'm looking at this, and I'm going, ah, da, 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 da. okay, I got it now. I'm just going to, you know, five precepts, meditation. I'm going to start to understand impermanence, suffering, and not self. And then another thing dawned on me that there is no one to die. Because if you're nobody and just a bunch of aggregates or name, who's going to die? So I'm looking at myself, and I'm going, well... You know, if I'm doing my Facebook postings, I am the Facebook guy. And if I'm posting on my podcast page, I am the podcast guy. And if I'm driving my car, I am the driver guy. And all those people are going to die, but all those people aren't necessarily me. And I'm not necessarily them. So 
How do I plan to die if no one is going to die? What does that mean? No one is going to die. And I paused. I didn't really know what it meant. I didn't really know the idea of not having to defend your life because it's not yours. You've never had a life. You've been an actor in a life. You have been giving certain roles and scripts to play, you know, and you've done a good job or adequate job. And then, and then when it's time to go and you have to set down those scripts and the role ends and you get fired and then you have to transition, can we be there in the silence of transition? And I think meditation can allow us to get to that place where we can be silent and just be in the moment. And it's so hard just to be because we're not encouraged to be. We're encouraged to be something. Can we take the something out and just be? And then the transition is so natural. Because all animals know how to die except for humans they forgot. Because we have a mind that works in a radically different way than all the other animals on this planet. We have created our own world. We are part of that. So, I am so happy I had a birthday. (laughs) Because I've been able to think about a lot of stuff I haven't thought about for a really long time. Come to no real conclusions about anything, but that is so Buddhist, isn't it? You just get to that one point where you're just about sure of something and then you just have to let it go. And say to yourself, I don't know. I don't know. And go on to the next thing.